Welcome to Coastal Voices, an audio documentary series that explores the relationship between people, land, and water in coastal Louisiana. I'm Mike Pasquet, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and History at Louisiana State University. With support from the Whiting Foundation and LSU's Coastal Sustainability Studio and Digital Scholarship Lab, Coastal Voices will take you on a journey down the lower Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico where Louisiana has lost over 1,800 square miles of land over the past 80 years. That's an area the size of Rhode Island. Scientists expect a comparable level of land loss in the next 50 years if coastal protection and restoration don't become a priority. Coastal Voices will introduce you to the perspectives of those who call the coast home, with an ear toward the historical and cultural impact of environmental changes to this endangered landscape. It's about telling stories and listening to the stories of people who have an intimate knowledge of Louisiana's waterways and lifeways. In August of 2016, 20 to 30 inches of rain fell in the vicinity of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. A no-name storm just freaking sat there raining for days, saturating a landscape streaming with waterways with nowhere to go. Upwards of 75,000 structures flooded. 13 people died. A Red Cross representative described the event as the worst natural disaster to strike the United States since Superstorm Sandy. I live in Baton Rouge. I didn't flood. But I know many people who did. Like my barber. Every month when I sit in his chair to get a high and tight, I also get an update on his recovery. He and his wife and his two boys flooded in 2016, just like thousands upon thousands of my neighbors. And like thousands of people who didn't flood, I tried to help, however insignificantly. My friend directed me to one family, his brother's family, who needed help, who needed his home mucked and gutted. I got his address, typed it into my phone's GPS and drove up to his house with a bucket of crowbars and hammers, a pair of gloves, a pair of boots, a bag of sandwiches, and an ice chest full of bottled water. Others from my church arrived and we worked our asses off, ripping carpet, tearing sheetrock, demolishing cabinets, hauling wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow of his family's belongings to the road, saturated with filthy water and memories that were silent to us. In the previous episode of Coastal Voices, the one about the Morganza Spillway and the Old River Control Structure, we learn that we've forgotten how to flood. What follows is a series of conversations with people who now know what it's like. I focus on the small village of French Settlement, about 30 miles southwest of Baton Rouge, population around 1,000, seated near the banks of the Amite River, a tributary of Lake Maurepas. I went there after hearing about a church that became the village's staging ground for relief and recovery in the days, weeks, and months after the flood. Father Jason Palermo is the pastor of St. Joseph Catholic Church in French Settlement. We sat down together about a year after the flood in a pew in the oldest church structure in Livingston Parish. Father Palermo walked me through his memories of that time. You know, the mayor, didn't really have much options for a shelter and where to move the town hall operations. 
the water was quickly approaching the back end of the town hall. So um, that afternoon, we basically took certain things that we needed as police assets because I'm the police chaplain and uh, commissioned as well. So, I mean, I do evening patrol. So that was Sunday until the point where we started having to rescue people off the river late Sunday and we started bringing people here with their animals. And so Sunday night, um, I told Tony, I said, look, we're going to open the church hall and that's going to be our shelter. And she said, we're not supposed to have a shelter south of I-12 um, for emergencies. And I said, I don't give a damn. <laughs> um, we're opening the church hall and we're going to open it and people need a place to be. And right now they, they don't have a place to go. So we're going to open the hall. We have air conditioning. We'll raid the St. Vincent de Paul pantry that we have. We'll, we'll get some volunteers to fix some food. We'll, we're going to make it happen. And luckily from the past, people knew that this church where it sits is on high ground. Um, this community, the, the Catholic community, has been here since 1839. So they put it on high ground. And, um, and, and so we thought we had it made in the shade as far as being a shelter till Sunday night at about mm, 8.30, 9 o'clock, just as everybody was getting settled in in the hall, had put blankets down, brought inflatable mattresses, all that stuff. All of a sudden, the power went out. And uh, it would be a week before we get power back. So the power was out, but that didn't stop Father Palermo and his team of volunteers from connecting five generators to the parish hall. Area residents donated hundreds of pounds of perishable food. And at first it was, what could we bring from freezers and cook, uh, like ground beef, pork, um, just <laughs> deer, you name it, we, we cooked it for the first few days. For two months, exactly. Uh, we fed people. Second harvest brought us food. We got a lot of MRE stuff, um, and some of the MRE stuff didn't go. So we started getting creative because we had to feed 2,000 people a day, sometimes twice a day. And so for two months, I mean, 100,000 meals went out of here. In addition to preparing and serving meals, St. Joseph's became the City Hall and Sam's Club as Father Palermo likes to say, where people could get clothes, cleaning supplies, tools, for free. There was a mobile cell tower, a health center, and an ice truck on the church campus. There was even a FEMA disaster recovery center there, which took the direct intervention of the governor of Louisiana to make happen. Then came the long process of recovery. Father Palermo was there through it all. Everybody knew they were going to get through it. It was very seldom someone came in and felt that the situation was hopeless. Um, the initial shock is, is you put everything out at the side of the road and it's everything you've acquired thus far in life. I think what got people through it was just the little small milestones that they reached. I remember one day my sacristan, who's in her 80s, you know, we, we sent a team over there to gutter house, 
Then we had to send another team over there to basically um, do some mold remediation. Then we had to send another team over there to burn the stuff because she was tired of looking at it in the yard and nobody would go pick it up because it was too close to the house. So it's like, okay, well, Paula, I need you to come over here and help one day because they're going to burn your stuff in your yard and I don't want you to see it. And then after that, we started doing the work. I'll never forget the day that somebody came and said, Father, I've got a refrigerator, a stove, and a freezer. Do you know anybody who could use this? And I'm like, I need you to bring it over to my 80-something-year-old Sacristan's house. And when we pulled up with just the refrigerator and the stove, now, she wasn't happy because it was an electric stove. She wanted a gas stove. You know, old people like gas stoves. But to put a refrigerator in that she could keep things in in her house was so important to her. It was just the milestone of, okay, we got our appliances this week. The milestone of, we got our sheetrock done this week. The milestone of, we got it painted. The milestone of, we got a bed. The milestone of, we finally have our cabinets. It was the milestones that got people through it. From the spiritual aspect, it was every week just trying to give a homily to touch on where I thought they were in the grief process and to let them know that if they needed something, don't be too proud to ask. Everybody seemed to be too proud to ask. Sometimes I'd literally have to push the check into people's hands. Father, we, don't, we, we can't take this. No, you, you can take it. And you have to take it. Because I'm not going to settle for you not taking it. Every time it floods in Louisiana, or anywhere for that matter, people ask themselves if it's worth saying, if it's worth rebuilding, if it's worth the risk of another flood. In French settlement, most people stayed. People love the water here. Most people own boats who live in this community, know all the waterways, grew up on those waterways. It's a generational appreciation because their grandparents brought them fishing here. Um, and they don't want to leave because they just feel that this is paradise, that, you know, you got the woods out in the backyard and you got the water not too far away. The coast is interesting here because of the fact that um, our waterways need some major work. The weir needs to be fixed at the beginning of the diversion canal. The mouth of the Amit River where it hits Lake Marpaw is heavily heavily congested with silt and it it needs to be dredged so all that has to be cleared out um, for it to really work the way it was intended um, we see it all too often anytime we have a hurricane that's out in the gulf it doesn't have to even be close to louisiana it just needs to be in the gulf um, that the water rises here and i mean it'll it'll rise a good foot and a half two feet. Um, normally in the Amy, you know, when something's out there in the Gulf, because the water comes up in the Amy. But there's an acceptance in this community that they love water. And since they live next to the water, eventually nature 
is going to overcome what man can do. And so, if you really love the water, people accept the fact that two or three times in their life, they're going to deal with the water because they just love their community. They love the water so much. The question is, is how much do you love the water? And are you willing to sacrifice for you love the water? I sat down with Tracy Birch, assistant research professor at LSU's Coastal Sustainability Studio, to understand why French settlement and the greater Baton Rouge area experienced so much flooding in August of 2016. All water runs downhill in the end. You know, you're going to get to the lowest point one way or the other. Uh, and as we develop more in the landscape, we tend to, there's a little bit of forgetting that, right? You know, it's like, it's low there, but we'll just put a, a channel in and it'll be fine. Um, there's also desire to get the water out as fast as possible of certain areas. As they become heavily developed, you, you cut off the winding bayous and the floodplains around them that would have given you a lot of capacity historically in, in, in a desire to move the water out faster, um, which can be okay until there's just too much water because you also have much less capacity but distance, right? Where a winding bayou might be three miles long, a straight channel is only one. So you only have one mile of, of storage capacity versus three. And, and eventually it gets overwhelmed and it kind of backs up into the system, into the city. You also have a system that has been designed upland to get the water out as fast as possible. So if you're pushing the water out as fast as possible from, say, Denham Springs or Watson or Baton Rouge, and it's pushing its way down to a system that can't let any of the water out. So it just gets stuck. Uh, and it has to get stuck somewhere. And it, French settlement is the lowest point. It's the lowest point before you hit Lake Maurepas. And if Lake Maurepas is high, it might be lower. So it fills up like a bowl. Um, its French settlement is completely surrounded in wetlands. So that is the function that they have historically served. Uh, it's just that we have built in those places that were, were water storage areas. And so the water will sit there, and it'll sit there until the flood water upland has all drained out. It is the It then becomes the last place to, to drain out. So we're... Flood water in Baton Rouge might have been gone in two days or three days max. It might stay for a week in French settlement because all of the water from above needs to get there and then drain out. This storm showed people a lot of things that they didn't understand before. You know, that kind of flooding, that kind of thing is something that happened in New Orleans or around New Orleans, not Baton Rouge. And the veil has been pulled away a little bit from that, so... I taught a course at LSU on the history of religion in the United States. In coordination with Father Palermo, I had my students record the oral histories of several parishioners at St. Joseph's Church. The main topic of discussion was the flood of 2016. Fortunately, none of my students had experienced flooding in their own homes. But they all had friends and family members who did. I wanted my students to sit down and listen to the stories of those who flooded in French settlement. We can learn a lot from their stories. 
What does it take to get back on your feet? What does it take to recover? What does it feel like to lose so much? And what can be gained in the midst of such loss? LSU students Christian Davidson and Michael and McGinnis met with Mr. Hubert Leader in October of 2017. He's been living with flooding for a long time. Mr. Leader begins by talking about his experience of the flood of 1983, the last time French settlement and the surrounding areas flooded on a grand scale. 83, we had just not long moved here, huh? From Baton Rouge. About 10 years. 10 years. And, and we, we would get floods, but it wasn't no big floods. So that's when I decided to build a levee. Because we had to sand. If, if you don't have a levee, we would put sand, you call sandbag. You sandbag around your house. And then you got to put a pump inside the sandbag barrier because they leak. So you just pump the water back out and you can keep it. Well, I did this for about twice or three times before 83. And then I decided I'd build a levee. And, and uh, it kept it out for 40 years. But then Isaac come along and we got flooded then. And Laplace took a, a heck of a flood during that time. And then we got the big flood in 2016, maybe. Yeah. But 83, it didn't come over my levee. It got right to the top. But Baton Rouge and Denham Springs and all those, but all the water comes, it's got to come through here to get to Lake Marple. That's the only way they can relieve the pressure on the water. So the whole valley from Mississippi all the way down, if they get a lot of rainfall, it causes the water to come up. And then they got the barricade they put on the, um, on the interstate that kind of helped us because it slowed the water down. If, if all that would have come at one time, we probably would have got more water than we got. So it was a curse for them, but it was a blessing for us. That's what I feel about it. I, I'm not no expert, but I've been watching the water quite a few years. And I know just about what it's going to do. We got all kinds of theories, but I guess God gives us what he just wants. That's what I figure. I don't know if anything can control it. You're always praying, but sometimes in prayer, don't, don't, the good Lord don't hear him because he brings that water on you anyhow. But you got to expect it. When you live in a swamp, you got to expect floods. But those people in Denham Spring that were on these high ridges, they didn't have a clue what a flood was like. But if you go through a flood, you'll remember it. A flood is even worse than a fire because the when the house burned, lightning hit it, and everything just burnt down. So you just scrape everything up, dig a hole in the back and bury it, then you build your new house. But when it floods, you gotta take all the old wet stuff out, all your furniture, you know, and everything. And it's a job, it really is. I get kind of cheery when I think about it. It's emotional. And, and I'm not getting any younger. Mm -hmm. I mean, in 12 hour days, it's tough on an old man. I'm at my wit's end. Mm -hmm. They say, well, don't you lift your house? It costs us a fortune to lift the house. And we, we're not spring chickens anymore. We get along in age. I'm limited what I can do. I got my hands full just trying to keep this little place going. 
what do you think about if it would flood again? I don't know. I don't want to think about that, but I'm going to move. It's high. Elevation goes this way. And it's high over there. I want to move a trailer in, but my wife don't want to move. I don't want to live in a trailer. I mean, we had this house. It's comfortable. When it's, when it's running, everything's smooth. It's, it's good. Life's good. But who knows what's coming tomorrow? But they say, you live and then you die. That's all you can do. Mrs. Emma Jane Vizina is another resident of French Settlement. She retired there in 2001 with her husband to be closer to her children and grandchildren. LSU students Amanda Quintero and Natalie Lenata interviewed Mrs. Vizina in October of 2017. Her home flooded in 2016. She remembers the day she had to evacuate. On the way home, we were stuck five hours on the interstate because the interstate was flooded. And the people who rescued us were stuck in the flood. We went through the first water and water got in my granddaughter's car that she was driving. So we went, we saw another body of water. Well, everybody parked because there was a car floating in there. Finally, this big old truck come. I had to put a ladder, you know, that big middle thing, put a ladder for us to get from here into the truck. We had to leave the cars. And we couldn't take luggage, only I said, I have to bring my backpack on medication. So I had to put all the medication in the backpack. So that was easy enough. If I had it in the luggage, that would have been bad. So I just grabbed the backpack. It, it was an experience. And, and like he said, when we got in the truck, we were all huddled together. People that had been flooded. And there was a couple walking, a lady walking with four kids that had got on this side of the interstate. How they got on this side, I don't know. They might have walked in the water. She had lost her shoes even in the stuff. And we waited for them to come in. And uh, we all went to the shelter. I remember having some chocolate with me, thinking, I guess when I left, I says, I better bring that, it's gonna all melt. And I gave the kids some chocolates. <laughs> they were all traumatized, you know what I mean? Well, to me, we were just doing what we had to do. We had to leave there, we had to leave the car. That was kind of scary, not knowing what happened. It wasn't my car, but mine were already flooded, but worried about my son's car and my granddaughter's. In fact, we had to bail out my granddaughter's car because the water was, was my feet got wet in the car. Mrs. Vizina is back home with her husband. It's been over a year since the flood. I saved my pictures, thank goodness, because somebody had left the big old cool on the back porch on these big long ones. I got the cool and all my pictures were at the bottom of this cabinet here. My children's pictures, my grandchildren's pictures. I put that all in the cooler and put the cooler on top of the sofa. But we here, we happy. At least we got, like I said, we got a floor, we got a ceiling, I can cook. Bathrooms are fixed. But I'm getting rid of a lot of stuff because meaning the stuff you have is not what means so much. It's just being together in your house and having, having mm -hmm. the floor, the ceiling, and the walls. At one point in their conversation, LSU student Natalie Lenata asked Mrs. Vizina a question. I don't think I can forget her answer. Did you pray during the flood? Every day. 
every day. Oh, yeah. I said I went to bed sleeping a rosary, saying a rosary. I wake up in the middle of the night, continue my rosary. The one thing I asked, and it's gonna make me cry now, was all the strength it took him to carry that cross when he gave me some, because I needed strength. Crying's not anything I did during the flood because I didn't have to. But he gave me strength. And this, this is someone I got here that reminds me every day of it. Could you say what's on? The object so that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> Can't say who strengthens me because that's what I asked for. And I got it. So without Christ, I can do nothing. <laughs> we made it together. I don't know where we're going to make it. She's the boss and I'm the help. <laughs> Down the highway from French Settlement is Denham Springs, a suburb of Baton Rouge with a population of roughly 10,000 people. Over 70% of the structures in Denham Springs were damaged by floodwaters. Many were complete losses. Andy McLean is a resident of Denham Springs. He grew up there. He flooded there, along with his wife and two-year-old daughter. Andy also happens to be a master's student in my department at LSU. He's a friend. He has a flood story. Growing up in Denham Springs, you always hear about the flood of 83 and how the city had never seen anything since that. Um, and you compared everything to the flood of 83. You know, I thought, I thought our area was going to flood. I did not think our house would flood. 7.30 Friday, Saturday morning. So 7.30, I'm in the bed. Ashley and Evie are up. Um, Evie is what we call our daughter Evangeline. And I hear Ashley scream from the living room, oh my God, oh my God, Andy, there's water everywhere. And I didn't, freak out because I thought that there was a leak in the roof. It didn't click with me that there was going to be water filling the yard and everything like that. Um, and I, I walk into the living room and we have a small house. It's just over a thousand square feet and she's standing on the front porch and the water had come up halfway our front yard and it was no longer rainwater, it was brown. And there was a distinct change. And you look at the streets, and that's where the water is rushing through. Um, and it's probably at some of the bends, some of the, where the streets intersect. I mean, it seemed like class three and class four rapids. Uh, you know, I've, yeah, I've been on whitewater rafting, I've, I've done the canoeing and things like that, and I knew that we weren't gonna be able to walk through it. So I called Ashley's father. 
he has you know big Z71, and I said we can't we can't get out of here. I don't I don't know what to do. So he drives. They live about five six minutes away um, on the north side of the town. He comes up as far as he can up Florida. Um, as soon as you get off Florida, going down Don Avenue or down Walnut and Chestnut or the adjacent streets, that's where the water is rushing down. And Florida has kind of created this um, funneling of water into this lower area. And he finds three men with a bateau or an aluminum boat, flat bottom boat, to come and get as close as they can to us. So I get my Osprey backpack and I fill it with as much as I can of the diapers, the baby food, uh, some extra underwear and socks. And I take Evie in my arms and Ashley behind me. You know, we've got uh, whatever we can pack. I remember taking my MacBook and putting it up as high as I can in my bathroom on top of the cabinets, hoping that the water wouldn't get up there because I couldn't justify bringing that and we walk through our backyard, our neighbor's backyard, and our neighbor has a uh, very distinct driveway that goes down, and I can remember stepping onto the driveway in my, in my boots, I had my North Face boots on, and sliding down the driveway. And I've got Evie in my arms, and, and Ashley's behind me, and the, the, there's three larger men, uh, six foot to six four, um, trying to hold a boat in place in the middle of the street where um, the, I mean, basically where the water's at its slowest because it's swifter right along the edges. Um, I look behind me and Ashley just starts crying. And I laugh every time I, I think about it because it was absurd. She tells me, just go without me leave me and I'm thinking I can't we're not leaving you this this isn't the Titanic I mean you've got to come with us uh, so you know I get Evie in the boat I hold on to the side of the boat we get Ashley in the boat I get in the boat and uh, there's three of us on this you know in this little bathtub with three men slowly pushing us back upstream now one of the most iconic photos we have is of me holding Evie uh, in her little rain jacket where you can just see the top of her face and me behind her and behind us is, I mean, everything is flooded. At, at every point um, of getting away from the flood, there's always this sense of relief and it's immediately followed by uncertainty. It took a long time to go about 200 yards um, just through the water and but once we got there we got out we're on Florida and we get in the truck with Keith Ashley's dad. Andy, Ashley and Evie made it to a neighborhood on higher ground but within hours the water started to rise. Andy and members of his extended family started evacuating neighbors from their homes by dragging them in an aluminum boat to safety. Then the National Guard trucks started showing up. And after having evacuated our house, evacuated Ashley's parents, and now we're evacuating her cousins, 
feel kind of hopeless and where to turn. And the shelter idea terrified all of us with an 18-month-old and a one-year-old. Um, it did not. It did not seem like it would be easy or uh, ideal. So I call probably one of the most able-bodied country boys that I know from the, right at the north side of the parish who lives 20 minutes away um, call for and say, I, I don't know where to turn. He had just gotten home from Denham from evacuating people. Because uh, I remember him saying, I just walked in the door. Uh, and I said, well, I don't know what to do. Um, they're saying they're evacuating everybody to a shelter and I don't know if that's what's best for us. And he said, stay right there, I'll be there. As they're evacuating people to shelters, you know, there's only so many spots there. And now we're dealing with this dilemma of, if his name's Philip, if Philip's gonna get to us in time, or if we're gonna lose a spot on the shelter, or is there just gonna become a point they force us to get to the shelter? So we're standing right in front of the Catholic Church in Denham, Immaculate Conception. Um, and slowly watching the water come up from Immaculate Conception's property. We get onto a school bus that had been outfitted for, I think, tiki tubing. And you've never considered you know, the stability of a school bus uh, until you know, you're on this road where water is causing it to shift. You know, now you're considering that you've made all the wrong decisions and should have been on an army truck. And when you've got your 18-month-old and your one-year-old nephew you start, you know, prioritizing lives. And you're telling, you know, I can remember Dustin yelling at the driver. And he's a, you know, he's an associate, he's a pastor at a church. And it's, it's that, you know, pastorly but stern voice of, hey, bro, you got, you got to go. Um, we, can't, we can't wait here any longer. And there were several times where the bus stopped and the water is pushing the bus. And we started lowering the windows, thinking if the bus flips, we've got to be able to get out of it. Andy, Ashley, and Evie made it to Philip's truck. Then they made it to the home of a friend from church, where they waited for the water to go down. And then, the long recovery. The biggest questions there, because nobody goes through a what to do in a flood class, um, and in a area where there hasn't been a flood for 30 years, you, you know, there really isn't a lot of available knowledge of what to do because, I mean, even just the, the way houses are built is different and, and FEMA is in existence. And the hardest part for the next couple of days was waiting for the water to recede and not being able to get to our house and being in other people's houses. Um, and one of the hard parts about such a broad disaster is one, you wanna be able to help people, but everybody's affected. And you can't ask people to leave their own property to come help you. Everybody's stretched thin, but then you can't neglect your own property. Um, you hear you know, the news of you know, almost screaming, you have to get it out before the mold sets in. You have to get it out before the mold sets in. And so mold is you know, the fear monger uh, among you that 
that you start asking questions, well, was there mold? You know, how high did the mold get? What are you gonna do about it? For the first time, probably uh, as a family, you're having to realize and be dependent upon other people in a way that you never have before. Um, and it is uh, kind of a process of liberating your ego, a process of liberating your, your independence, of, of liberating your ability to do things on your own. The McLeans are back in their house. Andy still has that picture of he and his daughter taken on the day the flood came. What, what comes to your mind when you look at that picture of you and Evie in the boat? Hmm. How crazy it all was. How, how much water there was. One Saturday, my father-in-law and I actually drove to, we went somewhere, and even now, I'm, I made the comment to him, it's hard to believe that this road was covered with water. And I hear that regularly, depending on who I'm with or where we're driving to. There's these two realities you hold in your mind. There's the reality of everyday life before the flood and what it is now, where there there isn't water in the roads. There isn't you know, six feet of water in somebody's house. And there's that alternative where you picture and imagine, because you've seen it and you were there, of all this water being there and how different the world was when the city was underwater. Um, so that, that picture, <laughs> solidifies that experience. It, um, it continues kind of to perpetuate the reality of it. And it reminds you of everything that happened that day. There's, a, there's another picture where once we evacuated Ashley's cousin's house, when Ashley and Evie were on the boat, Evie fell asleep to the boat motor and it was six o'clock in the afternoon and so from 7.30 in the morning, you know, our 18 month old had not had a nap and finally she just passes out and Ashley's standing up there and you see the exhaustion in a young mother's face and her 18 month old child is in her arms just completely limp and there's boats and people and trucks all behind her. And that's the other, you know, those are the two pictures that stand out from that day. Um, and then, you know, I haven't got those pictures printed out yet. I, I'm going to, whenever I'm not living off a grad stipend. Um, I want those two pictures in our house because I guess this, this solidifies the hope that you asked about. Having those two pictures reminds me what we can get through as a family. It reminds me of the stability we can get back to anytime anything happens and what we've been through as a family.
Thank you for listening to Coastal Voices. Thank you to my outstanding students. Josh Jackson, who did the editing. Taylor Goss, who made the music and sounds that you hear. And Madeline Smith, my researcher and all-around killer. Visit the Coastal Voices website, where you can watch Madeline's interviews with residents of coastal Louisiana, look at past and present photographs of coastal communities, see some maps made by another LSU student, Delaney McGinnis, which will help you notice the incredible intersection of people, land, and water in places like French Settlement. And thank you to the LSU Graphic Design Student Organization, and especially LSU student Nicole Dow, for designing the Coastal Voices website. I hope you'll listen to our next episode. There are more stories to hear.